I love this church. I love this church for a lot of reasons. Um, one of them is right here. I just absolutely, the worship is amazing. Thank you, Matt and worship team, for leading us on this journey today, opening up the doors for the Spirit to flow. But I like a lot about the church. I, I love it that we have a ministry up back of Mount Zion House. I love it that my kids are immersed in senior high ministry with Pastor Riley and his team. And and my younger kids are in, in the kids' church ministry with the Gorowskis. And Mount Zion Christian School is amazing. We see a lot of fruit around here. We see a lot of light happening. We had a men's Bible study yesterday. We had almost 50 guys there. It was, it was amazing. A lot of you guys. A lot of times in life, we kind of just figure things out. We get, we get to a place where... God brings us to a place, and we get it, but we're not really quite sure how we got there. That ever happened to you? Like you just kind of showed up? Well, today I want to unfold the story of how a lot of this happened. How, how the light bearing at Mount Zion came about, and how it continues to come about. So to do this, I want to go back to a kind of older, more ancient way of thinking, a Hebraic way of understanding. As Matt mentioned, I I teach in a seminary, and so today you guys get to be seminary students for one day. But as I go on this journey with you, things start at the very beginning pages of Scripture that are vital to what you and I are doing in the place where you're at in the kingdom of God right now. So let me start by opening up the pictures of the pages of the Bible and going on a rather simple but complex journey. So are you ready? Here we go. In the opening pages of the Bible, God creates two overlapping realms. Think of these as spheres that barely touch. This is the heavens and the earth. The part that barely touches is where they meet. That was Eden. So this is the map of the biblical story. Humans are given a wonderful garden to rule on God's behalf, but something happens. They lose access to sacred ground. The entire biblical narrative is the story of how this great relationship between man and God means so much to God that he's not willing to just let it go. That he wants to pursue it. That he wants to go after it. And so we have the stories in our Bible of how he pursues relationship with us. And ultimately, the plan is that he does this to return to what he started with. A picture of two spheres where things are sacred. This is the recreated Eden, the new heaven and earth. Some of you have read a little bit about that. Where we will rule with him. In a nutshell, that's the complete story of the Bible and everything in it. God's devotion to a return 
to sacred relationship with you and me. Isn't that beautiful? I want to start in Genesis 2.15. It says, So the Lord took the man he had made and settled him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. These words are important, cultivate and keep. So Adam and Eve are created to function in this relationship with God in a role, and they're described primarily as being keepers and cultivators. So the Bible was written in Hebrew, and when you read this in Hebrew, the word cultivate is abad, and that means to serve. Now, throughout the whole pages of the Bible, that is our primary calling. We are to serve. But there's another part here that's interesting. The keep part is the Hebrew word shamar, and that means to keep watch or guard over things. Now, some people today feel like in their life they are called to, we, to watch over, to keep, to guard, things like that. We have a team in this church that watches over. Part of what I present today is going to be a puzzle. I'm going to give you little bits and pieces, but I'm not going to ask, necessarily offer all the answers. There's going to be homework an investment that might needs to happen. So I hope this is a launch pad of excitement for you after this to go home and really jump into the words of your Bible. But in Hebrew, this is called a mosaic picture. It's where the Bible creates bits and pieces of this, but it doesn't necessarily spell it out. You see, in our culture, in our Western thinking, we want checklists. We like checklists, right? The get-it-done checklist. But in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, it didn't lay things out like that. It was a little bit more dynamic. Now, it's important that it's dynamic because that's what gives us the great fruit of the church. That today, when you hear a message, when you worship, that some people are going to be ignited by the Spirit differently than what other people are going to be ignited. Some people have different giftings than what other people have. And that is the beauty that makes up the body. But we are all called together to serve a similar role, which is to serve. Now, every created being in the beginning had a function. You've probably never considered this before, so let me give you some of these. And this is one of my favorite things about the Bible. These are called the, the spiritual beings. So the one that we know of, we kind of call everything angels usually. We kind of group them all into angels, but there's different kinds. So angels are technically the messengers in the Bible. Their, their role was to deliver a message. And then we get, right in the opening pages, we get these other spiritual beings called cherubim. Maybe you've heard of those. Now, this one is particularly interesting because they're going to replace one of the roles that was originally given to man. Now, man might in some ways continue this role to regain the roles that were originally given, but it's that word shamar. So cherubim, what we see is when the garden is closed, what happens? We see cherubim guarding over the doors of Eden. Now there's another one that sounds similar, and these are seraphim. We don't know a lot about seraphim. In fact, we really only get Isaiah 6. But here's the way the Bible describes it. You probably never heard this before. They're agents of purification through their lips. Now we call this singing. But the Old Testament described it as agents of purification 
through their lips. Think about that for a minute, how we might purify with our lips. Now, the one I want to spend a little bit more time on, and these are not the only created beings. There's a divine council and a whole bunch of other stuff, but I want to talk about the snake in the garden. Do you remember the snake? Some translations say serpent, others say different things, but the Hebrew word is nahash. And the word nahash, if you look up a whole bunch of ancient texts, it always carries a very similar meaning. It's got two meanings. The root meaning of the snake or the serpent in history is to be a healer. Did you know that? Isn't that interesting? That snakes are healing agents. I don't like snakes. I look at a snake and say, "Get that! don't touch me with that thing. But in ancient times, that's what they thought, that the snakes delivered curing or healing. And that's why today the international symbol for medicine, Harold's staff, has a little snake around it. Now, there is this idea in the Bible. You have to dig a little bit, but you'll get it in the Bible. We all know John 3.16, right? You can recite that one. Everybody in here can recite it. Even most people that don't go to church can recite John 3.16. But my question is, do you know it in context? Do you know John 14 and 15 as well? Let me read it. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what Jesus is doing is he's comparing his destiny on the cross to that of the serpent lifted up in the wilderness that the cross might give spiritual healing. This is important. Now later throughout the scripture, what we're going to see is we're going to see the word for nahash. I'm going back to snake. The word for nahash takes on a different meaning than a healer or a cure. It takes on a meaning of witchcraft and sorcery. So throughout the pages of Scripture, when we continue to read this name, it has a negative connotation. So what I want you to think about this is that we have this snake serpent being that was likely created as all of God's creation was good. Its role was positive, but in the fall, something happened. It took the positive role that not only it was created to do, but then also goes to God's prized possession, Adam and Eve, and also removes what it was made to do. This is the spiritual battle that is going to pervade through all of Scripture. The evil forces trying to remove what you were made to do. So let me ask you a question. Where do you fit into this story? What is your role, your function, your purpose? I've seen a lot of great things happen in Mount Zion. Boy, I tell you, I am covered at this church over and over and over. I got guys that got my back for miles here. I see, I see things happen on a daily basis that I think God is smiling on. Where are you? 
Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God made humankind in his image and likeness. Now again, I want you to think Hebrew. I don't want you to think American. So this word in, we are created in the image of God. It, is a, it takes on a little bit of a different meaning than we typically think in our culture. So we often hear, we get this, that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We get that from the New Testament, that God is in me, right? Every little kid knows that. They preach that. God is in me. I am, I am one with God. So we kind of see that it has this dual meaning because we are created in the very image of God. He is inside of us, but we're also one with him. So when you see in, we're created in the image If you're into English, think of this as more of a verb than a noun. It's actually who we are. In ancient times, there were kings and rulers. And these these kings would erect these monuments. And the monuments were kind of neat because it showed where their their kingdom would go to. So you would walk to the end and there would be a monument of the king, usually an image, a face of the king, and then maybe on the other side there'd be another king that owned that land. You also kind of had these representations of the gods. These are called idols. They're different than the kingly monuments. So you're going to have these idols that are going to show you that there is a god somewhere in a temple And this is a reminder that this God is over that area. Now, eventually these gods are going to get worshipped. But what I want you to notice here is that what the idea of establishing these images throughout the kingdom, the idea of showing that a God was over this or that a king owned this sacred land, that that was like an authority that came to that land. And so now, when we're in Exodus 20, and, and the Israelites were told, I am the only God you will worship. And don't worship any other images whatsoever. That's important. That means something. And now we look at Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 is going to be the coronation of Israel's first king. And so... The people live under a theocracy. That means God rules everything. That's the way our life is supposed to be. That's the ideal God gave us. But the people go to him and say, we want a king like everybody else. So God does something really interesting. He doesn't necessarily do what everybody else, but he himself, this is Psalm 2, says, he himself will install this king on Zion as the anointed one. So God is actually going to take his image and extend it to an earthly human person by kingship. Now this is unique, really, to just Israel. We don't see this anywhere else. Like, you know, the other place, just because there's an image of a king and a statue, that's all that the king was. Everybody didn't represent the king. But what this is saying is everybody will represent the king. So what this is kind of saying is that you are the very image of the king. Have you ever thought of it that way? Goes on in Psalm, I'll pick up in Psalm 8. Now what we find is even better than what I just said. 
what we find is that God doesn't just simply extend his image to the king of Israel, but he even takes this one step further. He extends the image to everybody in Israel. So now not just the king might bear his image or be the anointed one, but all of the people that represent the kingdom might be anointed and called as if they're the king. Wow. Let me read this. Psalm 8. What is a man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than God. You crowned him glory and honor. You've made him the ruler over the works of your hands. Everything is under his feet. Now you might recognize this has a dual meaning again in Hebrew. So to track this, what it looks like, we read this and we go, oh, that's describing the Messiah, right? That's what you guys all think. And we interpret it this way because we see the whole lens of Scripture. We're so blessed to be able to open the Bible and read it cover to cover so we get the whole, the whole map. But originally, the original primary intent of this verse wasn't to show the Messiah. It was to show that each and every one of us was created as prized beings in the kingdom of God. That we are the image, the very image of God. I want to expound on this image a little bit. Exodus chapter 3, we catch up with Moses. And Moses has um, met God at a burning bush. And God says, I have something sacred for you. I've got a mission for you. So this is it. This is Exodus 3.11. Moses says to God, but who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God responds by saying something so simple yet so powerful. He says, I will be with you. It's very simple. It's a very, very easy phrase. So yesterday in our men's Bible study, we were talking about the shepherds of the Bible, how they were like the lowest of the low people. They were humble. It's, a, it's this picture, this mosaic in the, in the Bible of God saying, the people that I want to use the most are actually the ones, it's, it's backward culture of America, the ones that are probably in the lowest places, in the most humble places. That's who I can use the most. And we see that through Scripture over and over again. So this simple phrase says, Moses, don't worry about it. I've got you. I'm going to actually do this, not you. Now, God had probably been preparing Moses for this day. He left Egypt. He had everything in Egypt. And so when he leaves Egypt, he's probably stumbling around in the wilderness for 40 years. We don't know. We don't have this story in our Bible. But he's probably kind of going through a depression of, God, how could you lead me through these low, hard places? And during that time of life, he probably didn't see the significance that he would later bear. But he was part of God's plan or God used it. That depends on your theology. Lots of little things to think about today. Sometimes we don't know when we're in training. Did you ever think about that? 
that we might be experiencing something we can't see if we could only see from the spiritual perspective these spheres that join if we could see the domain of what we're a part of we might think differently about what god's got us into right now this is called kara in the bible it means that all of us are called to represent God. We all have that. I have a friend that lives up in Wausau. Really great guy. Now, by the world's standards, you would not call him a great guy. In fact, there's other names that would probably describe him better. This guy's never had a job. Every car he's ever owned has been given to him. This is a real guy, by the way. This isn't just a... Um, his sole purpose every day is to simply be Jesus. So he gets up in the morning and he posts free ads on the bulletin boards around town and he helps people load up their groceries in the parking lot and he'll go to the place where they load wood chips and he'll shovel wood chips in people's trailers and... You know, he'll carry a cross to Packer games. Lately, he started doing this really neat thing. He found a busy thoroughfare where cars could pull over. And he looks like a homeless guy. And he's got a little sign that says, Free Prayer. And he stands on the side of the road. And at first, nobody came because they thought he was nuts. But eventually, people start pulling over that desperately need prayer. And now, this guy's busy for like four hours every morning on the side of the road, saying prayer. I don't know what the mosaic of your life is. I don't know where God is calling you, but what I do know is he's calling you a little bit differently than he's calling me or the person sitting next to you. That he's done this from the beginning of time, from the opening pages of the Bible, that he has this grand plan, and through humility and servanthood, he's going to do something that you might not see coming. Are you ready for that? What does that look like? There's an incredible symmetry in this story that I want you to get. I don't want to leave this without showing you this. Moses escapes from bondage in Egypt. I'm going to call, even though he was a ruler in Egypt, I'm going to call that bondage. You'll get that. And he travels for 40 years through the wilderness and he meets God in a burning bush. And this is where God says, my presence will be in you. But it doesn't stop there. He takes the same thing that he did with Moses. And now he says, now I want you to take this picture, this calling, this kara, and I want you to go do the same thing with everybody else, my people. And so now the Hebrews get rescued out of Egypt by Moses. They wander around for 40 years. God takes them to Sinai. And now Moses says, God wants you to represent him. But he's going to do it. Let's read this. This is Exodus 19. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, They entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in the front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain. God usually is in these high places. Did you know that the Garden of Eden was probably a mountain garden? 
This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. And that you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you on eagle's wings. Brought you to myself. Has anybody rode on eagle's wings spiritually before? Have you been there? Isn't that a great feeling? Now if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart. These are the words to commission the Israelites. A kingdom of priests. Now some people, their Bibles read, a portion, that this is God's portion. There's a whole nether world of thinking here called the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. I need three more sermons for that one. So I'm just going to leave you with that one right now. But it means both. It's a dual meaning. It's a portion and it's God's treasured possession. The word is segula. So let me break this down for you. This is really important. What God is saying to Israel is this. I want you to represent Yahweh to all the other nations. I want you to obey God and fully keep his covenant with me. And I want you to have exclusive loyalty and allegiance. In the New Testament, this turns into obedient faith. Now, this was thousands of years ago that we're reading this. And it's interesting that today, in church right here, as those called by God, the description of what we're supposed to be doing sounds incredibly similar to that, doesn't it? We are set apart. Priests. It sounds weird in our culture, doesn't it? Have you ever, like, called yourself a priest in front of anybody before? You wouldn't feel comfortable doing that, probably. The priests represented God to the people and the people to God. That was their role. So what God is saying from Israel is, I want each and every person created in my image, in my likeness, in my name, bearing my name to present me to the rest of the world and the rest of the world to me. That's our calling. It's interesting, 1 Peter 2.9 says this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare praises that you who are called out of darkness into this light. It's funny, it seems like we just read this, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like I just repeated something like I got mixed up and read the same thing twice. But that's not what happened, is it? You see, it's in Exodus, but it's also reiterated in 1 Peter. So this is really important. What's happening is Peter is taking the proclamation given to the Israelites and he's applying it to Jews and Gentiles alike. Everyone. In the New Testament, that's called all the church. You and me. It's the priesthood of believers. 
What I find when I read this story is that very little of what is happening to you on a daily basis is probably important in the big picture of God and his kingdom. What's important is that you realize whose you are and you're ready for what God is going to do in that. Today we think of allegiance to God, like we place our obedient faith in God. That word in that I described earlier is tisa, and it means to bear the weight of, to carry. Now normally we think of that as like a weight on our shoulders, pilgrim's progress type of thing, but it was actually an authority. Remember when those, when those kings of ancient times put their images on places? The image shows whose land it was, who owned it. This is the authority of whose you are. You belong to God. Recreated sons and God. Now this is interesting in Hebrew. This is another one of these little rabbit trails I'm going to give you. Recreated sons of God. Women, did you know that this is neither male nor female in Hebrew? In fact, I prefer spiritual beings because that's better. So in Hebrew, this has no gender. Matt's actually going to teach a class on this on Wednesday night. Coming up in the spring, you should get into it. His classes are amazing. When we become God's portion, his treasured possession, we become recreated beings of a royal priesthood. This is what defines you. We're going to do a little reiteration again. This is Hebrew 2.5. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them in the glory and honor and put everything at their feet. This is Hebrews, but it sounds a lot like Psalm 8, doesn't it? So in Hebrews, the anonymous author who is Paul, takes Psalm 8. Sorry, that was a theology joke. He takes Psalm 8, and from the beginning of Hebrews, he starts this in 1, he's kind of doing this Jesus is better argument. So he's saying Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than the high priest, Jesus is better than the tabernacles, but what his point is, is Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that we are all completed through the cross in Jesus, that we become heirs of this royal lineage. Jesus is the full image bearer of God. So what does it mean for us to be on this journey, on this backwards journey of servanthood, humility, things like that? What does that look like? Well, it looks a lot like a priest. It looks like this role of servanthood. It looks like this role of my primary job is to bring others into a sacred presence with God. But we don't always think of it that way. There's a couple of interesting parts of our role. What, what is this role? We kind of learned about the beginning of the role. Then we learn about what Jesus does on the cross to bring us into this, but there's also an end game to this. 
There's also this thing that's described later that we're going to roll eschatologically with God. That means at the very end. So as I started, I said things start as this Eden picture, and in the end, we roll in a recreated heaven and earth. Second Timothy says, if we endure, we will reign with him. 1 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know that you will judge angels one day? People are like, what? Now, I don't know what this means. I got a THD in 40 years in school, and I don't know what this means. But it's pretty beautiful. I, I can't wait to find out. This is, do you remember when Star Wars came out, 1977? And the original Star Wars comes out, and we're immersed into this story that we know nothing about. And we watch a Star Wars, and by the end of the first time you ever watch Star Wars, you're more confused than you ever knew. And then the people, the kids that had read, the, the cool kids that read all the books before the movies came out, they knew that there was all this stuff that happened before, but everybody else is lost. And now, years later, we've got 27 films of what happened before and what happened after. Now, I'm telling you that I think when we get to heaven, we're going to find a very similar picture of the pages of our Bible. We're going to see that there were all these things happening in the spiritual realm that we had no idea were going on. And that's kind of this picture of rolling with God. I don't know what it's going to be look like, but I actually don't think we're going to be watching the movie of it. I think we're going to be in it. It's pretty exciting. Now, in this way of thinking, sometimes we want to say, I gave my life to Jesus. You know how we say that when we place our belief in him? It's got a connotation of momentary salvation. Like this just happened. Like one minute I'm, I'm outside on the deck, the next I'm in the pearly gates. You know what I'm saying? I want you to think about this, or I would challenge you to think about this belief of following Jesus as less of a momentary experience and more of a lifelong journey experience. Changes your mindset when you look at it this way. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now today, there are still spiritual forces and battles that are being waged. Some of you are into these battles on a daily basis. It's neat how God allows us through our spiritual priesthood to be part of this spiritual realm, this cosmos that we don't even understand. We know that at the cross, Jesus bound these entities, but we also know that they're still working. Some of our roles is to work spiritually, to work in that realm. Today, many of us are trying to figure out who we are in Christ. Now, I know that sounds a little canned. When I was little, I played with Transformers. Do you guys remember the Transformers? My favorite part about the Transformer was on the box. You cut out a card on the back of the box. The card had the power settings. Do you guys remember that? So it might say, this Transformer is super strong, but he's not very smart, or something like that, you know? It would be neat if we had some kind of like Iron Man thing on us 
that was like a power setting that said, we're this much of recreated spiritual beings and we're this much in the world. So we could kind of see the gauge as we go through our journey, right? But we don't have that. And some of us, like 2 Timothy 2 says, are kind of way too entangled in the things of this world. For, for being priests set apart whose primary role is to be light bearers and to, to show people who and where God is, we're a little entangled sometimes. But that's for you to figure out. And I think God's probably speaking to it. When Ty was little, Ty's my oldest son. I have four boys. Ty's 14 now. He's this big. But when he was this big, every Thursday morning, we would get up super early for this great thing that took place every Thursday morning. It was the garbage man. Now, I don't know what it is about a four-year-old in a garbage truck, but it's mesmerizing. And so he would want to come outside, and he would talk to the garbage man and ask what this button does. A couple times, he actually let him get in the garbage truck and take it for a spin and do the controls and everything else. But when Ty was four years old, what he wanted more in life was to be a garbage man. That was what God had set him apart to do, was to be a garbage man. Now, my wife and I have come to a place where we don't really care what our kids do. I don't care if they go to no college, community college, trade school, get PhDs, whatever. I could care less what they do. I don't even care if they go into the ministry formally. Are you tracking? I don't care if, they're, if they have a title of a pastor or a preacher or a teacher or anything like that. What I care is that each and every day is a step of a Jesus journey. That every part of their life resonates whose they are. The image of God. And that's all that matters to me. I don't care about any of the other stuff. If they look like my friend Keith up in Wausau, a homeless guy that's got a car that might not start tomorrow or whatever else, that's success in my eyes if their heart is where it should be. It's backwards, counterintuitive thinking to what we hear every day. In just a second, I'm going to invite you to consider your priesthood. This is weird. We don't think this way. You're a priest. What does that mean? How do you show that light? It's right in front of you. It's, it's what you're doing now. It's trips to the grocery store. It's talking to your neighbors. It's about, you know, ministering to those where you are right now. But God might also have you in training to be faithful in the little so that he might give you the larger kingdom things. I want to invite you right now, somebody that you're sitting with can come forward and grab some of the communion elements from the front. You can take them back. You can 
make little groups together if you want. You can partake by yourself or with your spouse. There's no pressure, however you'd like to do this. If you have placed your obedient, journey-like faith with God, you're invited to partake in communion with us today. So right now, go ahead and stand up, everybody. Come forward. Get some elements, and you can return to where you were. Now, as we're going to get these, I want you to think about something. I want you to enter into a quiet time with the Lord. And I want you to reconsider what he's asking of your life right here, right now. We've been doing this for a long time, but maybe you've never actually seen the significance in the story of the Bible that it's talking to just you right here, right now. If you want to bow your heads with me, if you want to pray with me, if you want to extend to put your hand in the hand of somebody next to you, you can do that. If you need to kneel, you can kneel. But I want to pray in that being, in that image, in that name, Lord, that you have given us. You have made everything that we need. You are enough. And that you want to do amazing things in our lives. Lord, help us to understand your calling. I don't know what image bearing looks like for you. One of my favorite stories, a buddy shared this with me this week. It was when the Israelites were in encampment in a war against the Philistines and they had this great warrior and no one would fight him. And a little boy says, what's wrong with you guys? This is the God of Israel that's in me. What are you, what, what's the deal? Give me a couple rocks, five actually, and I'm going to go slay a giant. And at the end he says so that all Israel may know that there is a God. What is it that God is calling you to do that all in your life around you might know that there is a God and that God is Yahweh. Usually when we partake, we talk about the elements of the broken body at the cross, the blood poured out in a new covenant through Jesus that we might receive this royal priesthood it was intended for Israel, but now we get to be part of it. That's exciting. I love that. But today we're going to go back to a more ancient covenant of fellowship. This is the charge of priesthood. You may close your eyes, and when we're done receiving the blessing, you're invited to partake in both the body and the blood of Jesus in his covenant. Marika, ya hera 
bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face upon you and give you his peace. Would you partake with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you in humble servanthood, asking that you might do an amazing work through us, collectively, the body of Christ, a royal priesthood of believers, that these pages of the Bible might be our story and how we bring others to your sacred name, to your image, to your very being. Lord, find us faithful in the few so that you might give us the much. Lord, thank you for this kingdom. Thank you that the charge that you have given us, the kara of your name. Lord, I thank you for this light that will permeate the darkness. Amen. If you would like prayer, we're always here to pray. There will be people in the front. Please come up and join us. If you'd like prayer where you're at, there's people around you that'd be happy to bless you in that way. Don't be afraid. May God bless you and keep you. <laughs>